Building the Seven-Figure Attorney Mindset and Reality with Craig Goldenfarb, Episode 291. Are you ready to make your law firm a profit-generating machine that will free up your time and skyrocket your impact? With more than two decades of business growth experience and having proven that you can be successful while prioritizing your family and your impact, Introducing the Profit with Law podcast. I am your host, the creator of the firm differentiator 10x effect, Moshe Amsel. Well, hello and welcome to another amazing guest interview here on the Profit with Law podcast. My name is Moshe Amsel and I am with um, none other than Craig Goldenfarb of Law Offices of Craig Goldenfarb. Uh, he is also known for the seven-figure uh, attorney seminar that he holds in New York and his seven-figure um, attorney coaching program at sevenfigureattorney.com. Uh, he's got an eclectic resume behind him. Uh, first, his own firm, his PI firm that he, he started in 2002, uh, growing it to 11 lawyers and, and 70 uh, or almost 70 staff members in the South Florida personal injury market. Uh, he runs his company on EOS principles, which is based off of the book Traction, Gino Wickman, uh, which um, uh, you know I talk about here on the podcast and I work with my clients on, on helping them implement as well. Uh, he's also a uh, aficionado of KPIs, which hopefully we'll get to talk on. Uh, people are always, you know, they, uh, understanding that KPIs are necessary, but really kind of struggling to try to figure out what KPIs are important. Um, and uh, he's also a private PI lawyer coach, uh, as well as the, um, the coach for the Atticus Personal Injury Academy uh, content in their, uh, their, their, uh, their coaching program for personal injury attorneys. Uh, so I'm really excited to have Craig here on the show. It's, it's been a long time coming for us. He doesn't know that, but we've, you know, he's been one of the people that's been on our vision board to get here on the podcast. So really excited to have uh, Craig with us today. Craig, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Moshe. It's great to be here. So uh, I want to jump in with a real easy question, and just so our audience gets to know you in case they haven't heard heard of you before, just give us a little bit of the backstory, um, you know, maybe even how you got into law in the first place, but you've got quite the journey that you've taken, and if you can summarize it in five minutes or less, um, what would be the highlights that you, want, that you would share with us? Sure. I do have an interesting journey. I grew up in uh, Florida, and uh, my mom was a criminal defense attorney, and uh, back in the 1970s and to have a female role model of your mom being a, a lawyer back uh, when I was a kid was pretty cool. And not only was she a criminal defense attorney, but she was the first female Harvard law professor, which was pretty inspiring as a kid and pretty intimidating. So uh, she had a case when I was 12 years old that was in front of the Florida Supreme Court and she brought me along. And I got to watch my mom argue in the Florida Supreme Court when I was 12 years old. So that was pretty inspirational, and I realized that I really liked what she did for a living, and uh, that led me into becoming a lawyer. So I went to, uh, to college and then to law school at the University of Florida, and then I went down to Miami, and uh, I was lucky enough to work for my uh, father-in-law at the time, and uh, he was a big personal injury attorney in Miami, and he asked me when I started. First day, he said, do you want to be a lawyer? 
or a businessman or both. And I thought that was a wonderful thing to hear for a 25 year old. And I said, how about both, sir? And he said, are you interested, really serious about my daughter? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, well, if you guys are serious and you're going to get married, I will teach you how to do both. And we've had a deal ever since. It's been about 30 years. So he taught me and mentored me in two tracks. It's almost like having two majors in college. The first major was the business of law. And the second major was being a lawyer. So he taught me how to do both from the time I got out of law school. And boy, was that a blessing because I got to do a dual track education. And from day one, he taught me how to structure a business, not just a law firm. So ever since then, I was, partner, I, was, uh, uh, I was working with him for several years. And then I moved out of Miami, moved up here to West Palm Beach, Florida, on the East Coast of Florida. And I've had my own law firm for over 20 years. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, I was wondering how you got into personal injury if your mother was a criminal defense attorney, but now it makes sense because uh, <laughs> you got you got somebody from the other side of the family uh, who's practicing personal injury. I think that's an incredible story, but I also think it opens up this, this vacuum where somebody who's listening to this podcast says, yeah, but what about us who don't have a father-in-law that takes us under our wing and teaches us the business of law? What are we supposed to do? And I think that uh, one of the biggest things that I hear coming from um, my clients is, um, you know, they don't teach business in law school. And it's almost gotten to a point where attorneys are using it as a, a, a defensive flag of saying, this is why I'm not successful, rather than trying to figure out how to fix that problem and educate themselves on becoming a, a you know, somebody who's educated in business. And I'll even say this, I have an MBA. And I went through all the classes needed to become an MBA. And there's zero that was taught about running a small business when you go for your MBA. So going to business school probably wouldn't have prepared you for running a law firm anyway. Um, so what's the solution for somebody who's, uh, you know, that I don't know how to run a business, but I want to, I want to run my own law firm. Well, I think the first step, it's a great question. I think the first step is your mindset. I mean, there's a great book, um, you know, by Carol Dweck called Mindset. And uh, it's one of the first books I read when I was thinking about becoming a businessman, which is just to have a mindset you want to learn. And I find that a lot of lawyers, it's kind of weird. Um, we think of ourselves as professionals instead of businessmen, businessmen, because we're taught from an early age how special we are. And we're not special. We just happen to have a good brain and happen to be lucky enough to go to law school and enter into a good career. So if you have a mindset that you want to continuously learn, I mean, I'm, you know, middle-aged dude. I still go to three, four, five seminars a year. I still pick up a, a few morsels at each seminar. And I think that's how I started my career. And that's how I'm ultimately going to end my career is that you don't want to stop learning. So, uh, you know, if you want to learn business, start reading books, start becoming a member of organizations or courses such as yours, Moshe, where everyone's into learning and collaborating and helping. So the fact that I had a father-in-law that taught me some of this stuff was definitely very helpful. But at that time, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have Facebook groups. We didn't have anything in the late 1990s. Uh, you know, I just had my father-in-law and there weren't that many seminars. So the fact that these days for someone who's young, there's so many opportunities, so many knowledge resources, so many Facebook groups and seminars. Um, I don't think it's that difficult. I think if you go to all these groups and really immerse yourself in the organizations that teach, 
that is just as good as having a mentor or a tribe of mentors as, as the book. There's a book called Tribe of Mentors. So, you know, having a tribe of mentors is really easy these days. Yeah, and I, I think it's um, bringing up the fact that it's really easy is something that we should caution our listeners about because you kind of need to make a decision about who your mentor is going to be or who your group of mentors are going to be. But it's easy to get torn in different directions and actually be given different messages from the different mentors that are out there. And there isn't a right or wrong way. Um, one of the reasons that I went into the legal community and said, here, I'm going to teach you how to grow your business. I'm going to teach, I mean, we call this podcast profit with law, right? So many people were focusing on top line revenue. How do I get my revenue to be, you know, I want to be a million dollar firm. If you're focusing on being a million dollar firm, you're focusing on the wrong thing. Focus on how, how you can take home 250,000. And when you get, when you figure that out, you'll probably be a million dollar firm. But the problem is, is that we're focusing on that, on that, on the wrong number. So a lot of attorneys who are teaching other attorneys how to do it, they're, they're they came into the marketplace saying, here's how I did it. I'm going to show you how to do it. And that doesn't work for everybody. So that's really where I started, you know, working with lawyers is to say, Hey, I didn't do it. I'm not an attorney. I, I, I understand business. And I'm going to, no matter what practice area you're in, no matter what business you're in, I'm going to show you how a business is run. I'm going to show you what's important and we're going to focus on that. Um, and I think that really it's, you know, you, what you're said about mindset and being willing to learn is, it's ultra important, but also recognizing that you can go the hard way. You can try to figure these things out yourself and learn from your own mistakes or you can, you can join somebody who can be in your corner, who can be your coach, who can help you to see the things that you're not seeing and give you some sort of success path that you can follow uh, so that you're not figuring it all out on your own. Uh, so I love that as, as, as the, the first stepping stone. Now, you have a brand, um, the seven-figure attorney, and I know I just pooped on it, right? Because that's, that's talking about, that's probably focused on top line revenue, right? Um, and I didn't mean to do that. Um, but what is, what do you think is the makings of a seven figure attorney? What do you think that they need to, somebody who's not there, right? Maybe they're at 300,000 in revenue, 500,000 in revenue. What do they need to overcome or figure out or understand to unlock the potential of being a seven figure attorney? Well, it's funny because you're right. I named it that, uh, the seven-figure attorney, because that's what most people come into um, the learning process thinking they want. They want a seven-figure firm, but what they don't know is what it, the building blocks that it takes to get there. So I, I named it even knowing that just getting to that revenue goal doesn't necessarily mean anything. But when I was young, when I was 25, 27, 28, uh, or when I started my firm at age about 30, that was my first goal. I didn't realize that in order to do that, you had to create a work culture. You had to hire the right people. You had to figure out business structure and organization and all of the building blocks. So you're 100% right. The, the fact that I'm at seven figures or now multiple eight figures doesn't matter if, you're, if your profit percentage is 2%. It doesn't really matter what your growth is. So, um, so the key to me starts with um, the learning and then thinking, realizing that you're a business and realizing that there are fundamental building blocks, just like you said, Moshe, for any business of, you know, the things that are in traction, you know, there's five parts of every business. And if you realize those five or six uh, pieces of the pie, no matter whether you're selling plumbing equipment, 
or legal services, that you realize that all businesses are the same. So uh, once you realize that it's really kind of formulaic, and once you get that and get the, the, the same pieces for every type of business, then you'll really start to be able to grow and scale to any size, any size at all. Great. So um, our listeners are sitting here saying, okay, tell me what are the five pieces? So uh, why don't you, why don't you give us those five pieces so that they can uh, rest assured knowing that they have got, they've got the ingredients. Well, now you're asking me to recite the five pieces from uh, EOS, which of course I don't remember. So um, we've, we've established them all into our company um, Mm -hmm. and they're in our vision traction organizer. But you, you caught me there, Moshe. You'd have to do that because you probably read Traction more recently than I did. <laughs> and I'm not going to put myself on the spot either. So, um, uh, but definitely go read the book Traction. We're going to, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll link that up in the show notes to this episode. Uh, and you can go purchase that on Amazon or uh, at your favorite bookstore, wherever it is that you like to purchase your books. So uh, what, tell me about this. I know you do a one day seminar um, in New York City, um, around the seven-figure attorney concept, what are the kinds of things that you cover in that one day? Like, what is the 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 curriculum that's going to impact somebody so so much that they should come and spend a day, um, you know, in that room, and that's going to unlock their potential for success? Well, we start off by talking, as I said before, about mindset which is that you really have to get, get away from the thought that you're just a lawyer. And uh, a lot of people, as I said, you know, from the time we're five years old and we're told, hey, you're gifted, to the time in middle school where we take the, what is it, the, the pre-SAT and we're told how gifted we are. So we're reminded over and over again how wonderful we are. And that leads to us thinking that we're in a profession, not a business. And I find that a lot of people um, eschew or, or turn their nose up at advertising business techniques, et cetera, because of that mindset. And they don't, and, and they think something bad about business that is beneath them. So I start out the seminar really trying to shift the focus and change the mindset for anybody in the room who's stuck in a story of that they're special or stuck in a story that business is beneath them because they're in a profession. So that's kind of how I start. And then I start talking about people and I start talking about um, that people are the backbone. So, uh, you know, uh, the, in EOS, uh, the six that I finally remembered are vision, people, data, issues, processes, and traction. Those are the six uh, parts of the components of every business. And so that's kind of how I, I one of the ways I structure my seminar is to talk about all parts of a business is I kind of mirror the six aspects uh, from EOS. So once you talk about the fact that you can shift your mindset, you've got to determine um, on a continuum, whether you want to be a lawyer or a businessman or somewhere in between. And if you really ask yourself that question, it's almost like a, um, a continuum. You can be hundred percent CEO like me and I do zero law. I have zero cases and I haven't in 10 years. Or you can be 100% technician, which is all you do is law. And if all you do is law, you really shouldn't have your own law firm. You should work for somebody. Or you can hire a CEO. Or you can hire a CEO. Um, And you can do it, but you're going to be stuck. And you're going to be stuck because all of your time is going to be spent on cases. And that's okay. 
but you're probably going to have, you're going to struggle in growth because you're stuck in being a lawyer 100% of the time. Most people want to be somewhere on the continuum. Most people don't want to be 100% one or 100% the other. I do. I want to be 100% businessman. But a lot of people are. You didn't start. Admittedly, you didn't start there, right? I when your father-in-law, didn't. when your future father-in-law asked you the question, you said, "Hey, I want to do both." And I well, think I, that you I stepped did. into this 100% business owner role. I did. I spent about 10 or 12 years being a trial lawyer, and my and at the same time, I was learning about the aspects of business. And about 10 or 12 years in, I thought to myself, "What am I good at? What am I best at?" And what's the best use of my time? Well, if you read Traction, it distinguishes between the, the, the integrator and the visionary. And I realized I was really a visionary. And I'm the person who came up with great ideas to expand the business, expand the marketing. So I started going more and more towards the CEO visionary role. And I realized that's where I was most happy and what I was best at. And the whole key to a successful career, in my opinion, is figure out what you're best at. Surround yourself with people who complement or supplement your weaknesses, and then you'll take off because you'll be happy with what you're doing and you want to do it. So once I figured out where I wanted to go and that I was a visionary, I spent all my time working myself into that position. So I now have seven trial attorneys, and they're all amazing. And I have 70 staff. And all these people are either supplements to me or complements to my weaknesses, but I'm the CEO and the visionary, and I drive the ship. Yeah, I one of the things that I share with my with my clients um, is this math computation, where if you look at a full time attorney, and you say just make an assumption that they they have fifteen hundred billable hours and you're billing them at you know two hundred fifty dollars an hour, which clearly that's too too little time, too little amount for the hours. And I know we're talking, I'm talking to somebody who's personal injury and you don't deal in hours, but it's something that people can wrap their heads around. Well. One full-time attorney can easily be responsible for a $600,000 revenue stream. And it's probably more than that. You have 11 attorneys. You prob- they're probably each responsible for a million plus in revenue, right? So when you start looking at your role as the business owner and you start looking at the potential revenue that a full-time attorney can bring, you can start to see how much you're holding your firm back because if you're not putting all that time into the legal work and all that other time that's being spent on other things is time that cannot be provided as legal services. And the more that you decouple those roles, the more likely you are to hire an attorney and then you need to fill that attorney's plate. And now all of a sudden you're motivated to to have that $600,000 revenue stream. So it's almost like that thing that's holding you back is the resistance around hiring an attorney onto your staff. And um, one of the things, and I I recently created a a new framework to help um, encapsulate what I teach. And I broke it down and the main components into plan, grow, scale. And one of the differentiators that that I think is important for a business owner to understand is the difference between growing and scaling. And I like to, I'm a, I'm a dad of six. So I like to, to use the analogy of kids. Um, what's the difference between growing and scaling? Well, when you have one child, you're, you're putting all your efforts into raising that one child. You want to help that child grow to adulthood. That's growing. 
when you want to have a bigger family, you add more children to the mix, that's scaling. And it's in the business, it's the same way. If you are putting your efforts into maximizing the potential of what you have today, which might be just be you, then you're growing until you've maxed that out. Then the growth is limited. That's the most that you can do, that you can't, you can't grow beyond yourself. But as soon as you start scaling, that is when you're adding more attorneys to the mix, more paralegals to the mix. And now you have the ability to grow even further because now you have a new set of children to raise to adulthood. And, um, you know, that's really your motivation should always be, how do I maximize my growth so I can step into the next version of scaling for my firm? Um, so what do you, what do you think, uh, Craig on, um, some, somebody who understands this concept, they, they say, okay, I understand that I need to be a business owner. I need to kind of separate myself from legal services. Maybe I'm not going to go hundred percent, but I'm going to try to focus as much as I can on the growth of the business. Where should they be focusing their time and energy on when we're talking about growing the business? So often people, they, they, they have this misunderstanding of what working on the business is, which is something people like to say, I'm going to work on the business instead of working in the business. I think I'm going to piggyback on your analogy because it's excellent. So if you're raising a child and you're raising them through puberty and you've come up with five rules as to how to get your 11-year-old daughter through puberty, right? So if mm-hmm. you, let's pretend that was even possible <laughs> to successfully get your daughter <laughs> through puberty, right? I did, I, I have two, two daughters. Um, so let's pretend there are five perfect rules to get your daughter through puberty um, successfully. So the key there is to document and proceduralize that process so that once it's done, you don't have to do it again. So anything that is done more than once, which is make your daughter feel good about herself, right? Write it down. Step one, reaffirm your daughter's wonderfulness, right? Now, when you have daughter number two, someone else can reaffirm your daughter's wonderfulness because now you've made it a process or a procedure. So you can have 10 daughters and assuming this analogy worked, which it wouldn't because it's only one dad, but assuming that this analogy worked, I now have seven litigation teams. Do you think that anyone, do you think that I have to train litigation team number seven? Absolutely not. Because with litigation team number one, number one, we documented all the systems We got all the training down. We automated everything. So when we added another litigator and two sub-staff, the paralegal and the litigation secretary, all we had to do was say, here's the playbook that we already did. Go to town. We can add pre-suit teams or pods, we call them pods, or litigation teams or pods without involving more of my time. So the key to growth, growth, is figuring out those five rules to raising a successful, successful daughter. That's growth. Scaling is documenting the growth, making it into a system so they can stamp it out and repeat it. So I love your analogy. I probably butchered the analogy as far as raising girls. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I like your analogy. And if it was, in fact, possible to proceduralize parenting, then you could do it with 20 kids instead of just one. I'll tell you how it's working out with six and we'll (laughs) take it from there. Um, So, yeah, I, I, I love that. And um, I want to have some follow-up questions for you specifically around proceduralizing, documenting, you know, people, there's, there's a couple of questions around that, that I think people have. So the first is, is that I noticed 
sometimes, um, you know, this is part of the blessing of, of having education at our fingertips. I find that sometimes that attorneys are focusing on systemizing and processizing before they're even thinking about bringing somebody on, which if you think about it, it logically makes sense that I'm going to make it easier for that person to walk through the door. But in practice, what it does is, is it delays or allows them to punt the hard job of hiring somebody and starting to put them to work. So the first question that I have for you is what are your thoughts on this? When should somebody um, think about hiring somebody versus um, spending time on, on you know, uh, um, documenting what that person's going to do, uh, which came first, the chicken or the egg? I would say the primary focus should be hiring first. So uh, when I started my law firm, I had one person and um, just Debbie. She was great. She came with me from my old law firm. So I realized that even though I had Debbie, I was still opening the mail because I didn't trust that Debbie could open the mail, which was kind of stupid. So I realized that the best and effective use of my time was not opening the mail. And then once you open your mind to analyzing what you're spending your time doing and get over the fear of delegation, and delegation is fail, failure to delegate is all about fear and trust. So once I knew I could trust Debbie with tasks one through 10, then I realized that there were probably tasks 11 through 20 that I could trust a paralegal for. And Debbie was just a secretary. So I scrimped and saved and saved up enough money to hire a paralegal. Um, I use the analogy often that when you go into the doctor's office these days, there's a physician's assistant and there's a medical assistant and there might be an, an advanced registered nurse paralegal uh, practitioner. Those are three physician extenders. And what they do is they allow the physician to see 500 patients at once and bill, bill, bill to the insurance company because the reimbursements are so down. Now, just like in a medical office where doctors have come up with these physician extenders, all of our staff are lawyer extenders. So a paralegal, a litigator, a receptionist, an office manager, to be honest, they're taking things off your plate. They're allowing you to do what a doctor's office does, which is to see 500 patients at once, or in my case, 5,000 clients at once. So if you use that same analogy, when you go to the doctor's office, you might not even see the doctor. And guess what? You might be okay with that because the physician's assistant or the medical assistant or the ARNP is quite competent. And we're used to that. Well, guess what? People are used to it in the legal industry too. Clients don't get to meet me unless they insist and they jump through a lot of hoops that we put up and then they get to meet me. But they don't have to meet me because I have so many competent attorneys and staff working for me. So once you realize that staff is the key to growth and then the key to scaling, and you overcome the fear of delegation, I would say your first focus should be scrimped together every penny you can to hire your first staff member. And if you think you can't afford them, you are absolutely wrong. And the reason is because as soon as you hire that person, you'll be able to free up your time to either service more clients or get more clients through marketing or do other things that are worthy of your time, not opening mail. Absolutely. And, I, you know, it's so much about capacity and we don't realize how much of that capacity we're turning away 
because in our minds, we don't have room for it. So the reality is, is you might have leads coming through the door and you're simply putting roadblocks in front of them, making them say no to using you because in the back of your mind, somewhere subconsciously, you know that if you say yes, it's going to make you work another 10 hours a week that you don't have. And therefore you're going to push them away. The moment that you un unlock that, that, that key and you hand off some stuff to somebody else, you've created new capacity. All of a sudden that capacity will be filled. And it's like a vacuum where it just, it, it's well, the, actually, the, it's really more like osmosis, right? Um, where, you know, stuff's going to go from high pressure to low pressure and, and equalize. Um, that's going to happen in your firm. You're never going to be sitting with waiting for, for, for the legal work to come in because the moment that you have capacity, you're going to find ways to fill that capacity. Uh, and, and it's, it's, it's trading the $10 an hour tasks for the $100 an hour tasks for the $1,000 an hour tasks. And the more of those, an, yeah, go ahead. I, I have an, anal an, an analogy I use with capacity and it's, it's for, it's some, sometimes for guys. It's if you build a closet in your house, is there any empty closet in your house? And the answer is always no. Why? Cause you or your wife or someone's going to fill it with shoes and clothes or crap. Right. So nobody's mm -hmm. got an empty closet in their house. So the, the closet analogy is for the staff person you hire. You're scared when you hire that person that they're not going to have enough to do. If you can get past the fear of delegation, that closet is going to get filled with tasks because you're going to realize if you have the courage to get through the delegation fear that that task you shouldn't be doing, ordering office supplies you shouldn't be doing, dealing with the copy machine you shouldn't be doing, payroll even you shouldn't be doing at a certain point even dealing with operating checks or trust checks. These are things that you can delegate if you do it the right way. Now, every one of these things I just said, your listeners might be scared. Really, you delegate trust checks? Really, you delegate operating checks? Really, you delegate payroll? And the answer is even, once you- even, come, even checking your email. Even checking my email. Now, this stuff is all scary and we all struggle with all of this. But once you set up the right structure to do so, and ask people who have done it, how on earth do you delegate signing trust checks? It's your money, especially if your spouse doesn't work in the office. Are you serious? As long as you put in the financial controls, you can delegate almost everything except vision. So at my firm, I've delegated everything except vision. And now I can spend time doing podcasts. I can spend time lecturing. I can travel around the country speaking because my law firm really runs itself and I've delegated most things. And as I've said multiple times during this podcast, the key is overcoming the fear of delegation and really getting into the emotion of it. Now, Craig, when did you notice that your you didn't have to start you didn't have to worry about your personal income anymore? At what level of growth in in hiring staff and 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 growing and scaling and expanding in that way that it it was no longer a question of I'm going to sacrifice some of my income in order to bring that next person on. Well, I think if you have a certain revenue target and then a certain profit target and, you know, your profit target could be anywhere as small as 10%, you know, in my firm, it's a 29 to 30% is my goal. And the larger your firm gets, the harder it is to reach that goal of 29 to 30% in profit. But that's kind of a gold standard for large personal injury firms is if you can get to that, no matter how big you are, you're going to make plenty of money. So mm -hmm. even at seven figures, if you just hit seven figures, you're, if you make $300,000, um, including or not including your salary. That's, you know, a, a different, different conversation. But if not including your salary, you make 30%. That's amazing. Even at a million dollars, if you make 15% plus your salary, that's 150 plus whatever salary you pay yourself, you're at 250, like you said earlier. And again, I'm not a lavish guy, 
but making $250,000 a year when you're 34 years old and have one kid ain't, ain't so bad. You're fine. And then as you scale up, then at that point, since, as I said, I'm not a particularly lavish guy, once you hit 200, 250, you know, you're going to have a couple of colleges to pay for. You might have an expensive spouse or an expensive lifestyle. But once you hit that, if you're not crazy, then that starts to be at the point where it's all just start, it's revenue producing. So again, why the number 250? There's no magic reason. It's just from my lifestyle, I figured that once I got to that point in net income, um, either before or after taxes, that everything else was, it started to become great gravy and started to become just fun. So in your own personal journey, do you remember what what your firm looked like when you started to make that level of, of income from the firm? Was sure. it used to the solo? Did you already have an attorney? Um, um, and this is just so people can kind of like conceptualize what it might look like for them. Sure. I think I hit that uh, at about seven staff and maybe I had one or two attorneys and seven staff was also the key metric for me to when I hired an office manager and it was my first office manager. And I think one of my skills as a business person is realizing when to hire and who to hire. And people have said, how did you learn that skill? And that's when I, it's, I struggle answering how I learned that skill. But the only thing that I can think about, because I was probably you know, 35 years old at the time, 34, was learning, learning from uh, mentors, learning from groups, learning from other people, asking them, okay, when did you hire this person? When did you hire your first receptionist? When did you hire? I depended on other people to tell me, the people I respected, and I actively sought out other mentors and other people who are personal injury attorneys. If you are shy and don't ask those questions, you're never gonna know. But if you're a member of a Facebook group or a mastermind or your organization, Moshe, and you ask that specific question, when do you hire a receptionist? When do you, who do you hire first, a receptionist or an office manager? Who do you hire first, a paralegal or a secretary? These are great questions and listen to the people who have done it to scale like me. And I tell people, I, I know lawyers who have 15 to 20 staff and they don't have an office manager and I coach them privately. I say, I'm not talking to you again. I cannot coach you unless you get an office manager next month because you're running everything wrong and you're doing payroll and you're, you're listening to vacation requests and that's far below your, your skill level. So there are certain times when you should hire certain people. And I can say, once you've asked enough people, you'll come to terms with when you should hire certain people, but that is where you should be spending your money. Documenting processes is what I would call phase two, but you have to get to phase one, which is you have to have people who help you first. So hire, hire to your capacity, borrow if you have to, take a line of credit, but you've got to be a lawyer extender. You've got to have a lawyer extender, just like doctors have physician extenders. Yeah, absolutely. And um, one, one thing that might help you and, and definitely help our listeners is one thing that I learned in management is that your max capacity of direct reports that you can manage personally is six to eight people. That's the max. So that's why you had at seven people, it was time for you to hire an office manager, because if you had hired another person, you would have been outside of your capacity of how many people you personally can manage. So now you put a manager in place. And now the next game to play is how do I have five or six managers that are directly reporting to me, each of them managing five or six people. So um, when, as the business grows, every time that you get to that, that number of, you know, five, six, seven people, you want to insert a manager, insert a manager. And that's, that's really that's perfect. the guidepost. 
these. I had a leadership team of seven people up until about three years ago. And then once I instituted the EOS, I'm down to an executive team of three. So I only have three direct reports right now. And that's made my life a lot easier because you can manage six to eight. That's absolutely true. And it's a good guideline. But as you get higher and higher, you want that number actually to shrink, believe it or not, because there's so much volume of data. So I'm down to three direct reports and it's made my life a lot easier, Moshe. You're absolutely correct. And the more direct reports you have, the less rounds of golf you have. I mean, it's that that simple. <laughs> I don't even play golf, strangely enough. <laughs> I, I don't either, although my father-in-law has really been trying to get me to learn so that I could go on the, on the golf range with him. So it is something that I, you know, it's in my, on my bucket list. You know, eventually I'll figure it out. So as we, as we come to, to the end of the show, we're going to have to wrap up here um, in just a, a minute or two. I know that um, you do talk about... Um, um, culture in, in the firm. And, you know, if we can just take a a few seconds or minute or a minute to talk about the importance of culture as you're growing your team. So we established why it's important to hire people. That should be your number one focus, but as you hire people, you can do it in the wrong way and you can create a toxic environment or you can create an environment where people can thrive. So, um, talk to us about that for a moment. I think part of my mindset is that I, pre- I, I, I feel a lot of gratitude and you know, the gratitude for the people that work for me. I tell them that you work with me, not for me. Um, I, I have read the five level languages in the workplace, which is a fantastic book in figuring out what motivates your employees. I, have, um, I got lucky enough to hire an office administrator from Disney World. So she was in HR at Disney World. So her goal and her mission statement is to make this place the happiest workplace on earth, just like Disney World. And she has instilled upon this company um, a culture where everyone is supportive, everyone supports each other, there's no backbiting. Um, It's just, uh, we're a no drama office place. That's what we call ourselves. Um, And so we've put a real focus on everybody being happy. We have several different types of employee happiness programs uh, where we invest in, you know, bucket list items for them. We have a dream manager program, great book called dream manager that talks about supporting your employees to check off things on their bucket list. So we've really focused on the fact that we want people to stay. We have a, a lifer club, which is people who declare, which is not uh, enforceable people who declare that they want to end their careers here. We call them lifers. Um, we have just a culture that promotes longevity, promotes security and safety and happiness in the workplace. And because of that, we have very low turnover. Even during the great resignation of COVID, we've had very little turnover as far as people leaving us for a better opportunity. So the importance of culture is ab- absolutely our number one priority. And it's even in our mission statement is the importance of keeping our employees satisfied and happy. You know, Craig, I, I love um, all these things that you just rattled off. And, and as people are listening, folks, if you're like jogging or in the shower or whatever it is that you're doing, listening to this podcast, go back and listen to these last couple of minutes and jot down some notes. When you first start hiring, you're not going to be able to do all these things, but you can start thinking about what do you want your culture to be? What do you want the environment for people to be in your firm to be? And at least don't negate that in the way that you lead from the day, from day one. You know, don't be the opposite of that, but actually prepare yourself to step into into that role. Um, and as we uh, come to the conclusion of, of this podcast episode, I would love to, you know, maybe have a follow up down the road where we can dive into culture itself, because there's so many things to unpack with what you just shared. Um, 
what is one, like if, if you had to encapsulate one piece of advice for anybody who's listening to use that would work for them, no matter what size their firm is, no matter where they're at in their journey. Um, if you had to choose with one piece of advice to leave with somebody, what would that be? And then as a follow-up to that, where can somebody get more information about you, your programs, anything that they want to do that you'd like to share with them? The one piece of advice is where we started this podcast, which is to, to examine your mindset which is um, what, do you, what do you want to be? Do you want to be a lifetime learner or do you want to be someone who's closed off and not willing to accept things? I have a very successful law firm and I am not confident I know anything. In other words, I'm a confident guy, but I always can stand on the shoulders of others. So the one piece of advice is really examine where you are mentally and what is blocking you from growing and what is blocking you from learning, if anything. Um, as far as how to follow up with me, uh, the best way is to... Uh, Take a look at my seminar's website, which is sevenfigureattorney.com. Um, it's in New York. It is not being held virtually. It is a real live conference, April 7th, 2022 in New York, sevenfigureattorney.com. If you're interested in the, uh, some coaching programs, I, uh, Moshe's is excellent. There's different types of coaching programs. I'm a teacher at a company called Atticus in Orlando. Um, they have a wonderful system, and I, I coach their PI Academy. But get into some sort of system that's right for you and some sort of group. And uh, when you're supported by others that hold you accountable, and it, it's a community of people who want to help each other, that is a blessing. And there are so many of those communities around for lawyers. And uh, when I was younger, there weren't. And now there's all these groups filled with supportive people who want to help you. Um, and that's just amazing. I'm a member of mem many of these groups myself. myself and uh, it's been tremendous for me. I continue to learn. Awesome. Craig, thank you so much for sharing, for, for taking your time out um, and sharing your knowledge today. This has definitely been helpful for our listeners. Uh, folks, we're going to link up all that up in the show notes below. Uh, if you want more information about taking the next step with Profit With Law and our group coaching program, uh, you can definitely uh, sign up for a free coaching session with one of our coaches at profitwithlaw.com forward slash free coaching. Uh, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, make sure to hit that subscribe button so that you know the next time we release a new episode. We're here twice a week, every Tuesday and Thursday. Tuesday is just me solo behind the microphone sharing with you whatever uh, comes to my mind that might be helpful for you. But Thursday, we Thursdays, we have amazing guests like Craig that come on the podcast and share with you their knowledge, their experience, uh, their expertise, and it really creates a massive amount of value for you. So keep coming back, make sure you hit the subscribe button. And we'll, uh, we'll catch you on Tuesday. Craig, thank you so much. Take care. Thank you, Masha. Thank you for tuning into the Profit With Law podcast. Your feedback is extremely valuable to us as well as helping us reach more people with this valuable content. Please leave us a rating and review in your favorite podcast directory. Join us again next time when we are back with even more strategies to profit with law.